In Carter's Last Race, a selfish man in his 60s is granted the gift of youth to see if he can change his ways. Read Carter's Last Race and experience the exuberance of youth. The novel is available on Amazon. Welcome to the Sheila Stories, which relate the life of an Australian woman in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. I'm Pat Kelly, your host and storyteller. Now, to get us all back up to speed, in the last episode we heard the story Patience, in which Sheila taught Flossie Parker's children how to fish. On the fishing trip, the littlest child, Peggy, caught the biggest fish, a whopping four-pound flounder. In today's episode, we will hear the story, The Bandstand, in which Flossie Parker will try to set Sheila up with a lawyer from Wilmington, Delaware. The Bandstand Cape May had all sorts of places to eat out, Everything from pizza and sandwich shops to high-end restaurants. The guests each went their own way for dinner, but afterward they drifted back to the inn. Some retired to their rooms or sat in the parlor to read or play with puzzles, and some sat on the porch with a cup of tea or a glass of wine to enjoy the cool air. A few nights after Peggy caught the flounder, Sheila and Flossie sat on the porch in rocking chairs. Low wattage bulbs provided soft lighting. Blooming gardenias sweetened the air. Three teenagers, a boy and two girls, drifted past the house on bicycles. The boy whooped and the girls laughed. A tall man walked onto the porch with a coffee mug in his hand. Sheila knew only a little about him. His name, Neil Russo, and that he was vacationing with his young twin daughters no wife. She also knew he was handsome, with a clean-shaven face and black hair he wore longer than the current fashion. He tanned naturally, like his ancestors had come from the Mediterranean, and he looked good in a bathing suit, with muscular legs and arms. Mind if I join you? he said. Not at all, said Flossie, with a chin point. Take the chair on the other side of Sheila. Thank you. Russo moved toward the chair, and Flossie raised her eyebrows at Sheila as if to say, My goodness, what did we do to deserve this? She was always trying to set Sheila up with someone new. Jimmy's cousin, her insurance salesman, even the waiter at the lobster house. Hey, he's cute. You don't have to get married to play footsies under the table. In the five years since she had divorced Jesse, Sheila had dated some men, but no one for long. Flossie said she had grown too picky. Perhaps. But after the pain of Jesse's infidelity, she was in no hurry to put herself out there. The weather was hot today, said Neil. My goodness, said Flossie. I nearly burned up on the beach. Yes, said Sheila. But it's nice out here said Neil. It's perfect, said Flossie. A minute ago, a cool breeze blew through. I almost need a sweater. Yes, said Sheila. 
It's nice. Lord, why couldn't she think of anything to say? A tinge of excitement trickled along the backs of her forearms. How silly. She wasn't a teenager. Are you enjoying your vacation? asked Flossie. Oh, it's brilliant here. So different from the rest of the Jersey Shore. These big trees in the front, what what are they? Tulip trees, said Sheila. And I've got maples in the side yard. Such a beautiful home. Thank you. Sheila fixed it up herself, said Flossie. I'm impressed, said Brousseau. Sheila flashed her eyes at Flossie, begging her to go easy with the matchmaking. I had a lot of help, she said. Painters, carpenters, electricians, and plumbers. We refurbished pretty much everything. But she did the landscaping herself, said Flossie, still selling Sheila's strong points. You have a green thumb. Thank you. I've had some experience with farming. Is that an Australian accent I detect? She gave Russo a brief summary of her life. He asked a few questions. Flossie rocked in her chair, impatient, but Sheila relaxed into the conversation. He was easy to talk to and had a lively voice and a broad vocabulary. He probably made a great storyteller for the twins. Where do you live, Mr. Russo? she asked. Wilmington. And please, call me Neil. Flossie stopped rocking. What do you do, Neil? Sheila glared at Flossie again and got a shrug in return. Neil didn't appear to notice the exchange. I'm an attorney for DuPont. An attorney, said Flossie, as if he were a mountain climber or an ocean explorer. She resumed rocking. It's terribly boring. Lots of long meetings and stuffy conference rooms. Then it's good you could come to the beach, said Sheila. How do the girls like Cape May, said Flossie. They're having fun, he said with some hesitation. But I worry, his voice trailed off. It's just me with the girls since my wife passed away. I'm sorry for your loss, said Flossie. Was it recent? Five years ago. You and the twins must come with us to the beach tomorrow. Abby is ten and Peggy is eight. They'd love to play with your girls. Sheila, you can come too. Thank you, said Neil, with genuine excitement. That's kind of you. Sheila's a surfer, did you know? Why, no. He studied Sheila's face. She couldn't tell for sure in the soft light, but his eyes might be laughing. That's right, said Flossie. She owns the surf shop on Beach Avenue. I never met a surfer. Sheila had had more than enough of Flossie's meddling. Was that Peggy? What? Flossie turned her ear to the door. I think I heard Peggy. It might have been a whimper. I didn't hear anything, said Flossie. You'd better go check. Huh. Flossie frowned, but she obliged Sheila by leaving the porch. As she crossed the threshold, she mumbled, Some people try to help things along, and what do you get? Her next words were unclear, and her voice trailed off to nothing. Sheila looked at Neil, and they both burst out laughing. She's incorrigible, Sheila said. I find her charming, and I hope you join us tomorrow. I'd like to watch you surf. Flossie's methods were crude, but sometimes they worked. Maybe you'd like to give it a try, Sheila said.
Aren't I too old to learn? She guessed his age at early 40s. I sure hope not. I'm 38 and plan to surf for the rest of my life. The next morning, after the guests had finished breakfast and gone their various ways, she tried on her new one-piece bathing suit, navy with white polka dots. She pulled linen slacks and a lightweight blouse over the suit, brushed her curly hair into a thick ponytail, and checked her look in the mirror. Not bad. She couldn't pass for 20-something anymore, but then neither could Neil Russo. It had stormed during the night, but by morning the clouds had drifted out to sea, and the sun was shining on Cape May. Down at the beach, Freddie carried a surfboard away from the crowds to practice his technique. Sheila and Flossie sat under a beach umbrella. The four girls dug trenches in the sand and covered Jimmy and Neil up to their necks. The men cried desperately for help. Mercy! Please! We're dying of thirst! Which led the girls to fill a pail of seawater and trickle it on their heads. Flossie nearly died laughing. The men pretended to drown, but then came alive again as monsters that struggled from the mounds of sand and chased the girls into the water. Sheila ran in after them, and they all tried body surfing. The four girls soon returned to build a sandcastle. Sheila and Neil stood dripping next to the umbrella. Weren't you two going to surf? asked Flossie. We'll watch the kids. Neil glanced at the girls and then at Sheila. He shook his hands free of water. He seemed a tad nervous. She bit her lip. Hmm. He had broad shoulders and a strong chest. His teeth were bright and slightly crooked. She said, I brought an extra board if you want to give it a try. Okay. Now or never, I guess. Freddie had picked a spot to surf where the waves broke easy and rolled a short way before thinning on the sand. She had Neil watch Freddie while she explained what the boy did right and what he needed to improve. She then ran Neil through the basic drills she had taught Freddie a few days earlier. He had excellent coordination, and after an hour, he caught his first wave. While he practiced, she watched him from the beach. Every time he fell, he popped up, jumped to retrieve the board, and crawled on top to paddle out again. He reminded her of Sean Riker. Before he lost his leg in the war, Sean was the most beautiful swimmer she'd ever known. After one last ride, Neil walked from the surf, the water splashing against his shins and thighs, the surfboard under his arm. He laid the board down and sat next to her. Have fun, she said. His face was bright and his eyes sparkled. He laughed as if he couldn't believe his good fortune. <laughs> I haven't had fun like that since I was a kid. He gazed out to sea, his breathing steadier. But one thing would make it even better. What? she asked. To hear you say yes when I ask you to join me for dinner. Oh, he was ready to take it a step further. Was she? A date with Neil sounded great, but what about his twin daughters? A strange lady would raise questions. As if telepathic, Neil added, Flossie offered to take the twins with them tonight. Did she now, said Sheila. She might have had the two of us in mind. 
That sounds like Flossie. They ate on the porch of the Magnolia Room at the Chalfont Hotel. She ordered crab cakes, he had fried chicken, and they drank a bottle of white wine. His wife had died in a car accident. One day, she was taking care of the kids, the shopping, the cooking, and the cleaning, and the next day she was gone. The loss had nearly killed him. The staggering grief, the stress of caring for the twins, and the loneliness. He'd taken a year's leave, and slowly, gradually, he felt better. After the year, he'd hired two women to help full-time and gone back to work. Her chest grew hollow as he told the story. She sensed her shoulders sagging, but couldn't will herself to sit straight. She recalled the telegram informing her Colin would never come home, and her hands squeezed each other under the table. But she didn't discuss her loss with Neil. Not yet. Instead, she reached to put her hand on his. You're doing a wonderful job with the girls. Thank you. Some days aren't wonderful, but I do my best. The conversation shifted to the war, and they shared their experiences. They kept it light and steered away from the bad times. He howled at her story of stuffing the snake down Hugh Donnelly's shirt. He had been a fighter pilot in Europe and undoubtedly seen awful things. But all he talked about was the fun they had in flight school, buzzing the tower, showing off, and strutting their stuff in the local town. In the pauses, she found herself observing his mannerisms, the way he chewed his food, how he pulled on an ear when in thought, and how he laughed, clear-throated bursts of air and eyes that crinkled. He used his strong hands to accentuate his points. She wanted to hear more of his stories, laugh at more of his jokes, and maybe even hold his hand. She found him attractive, without question, but who was he deep down? She had loved Jesse. They had loved each other, but Jesse's love wasn't built to last. Could anyone truly know another person? They took a circuitous route back so she could show him the town park. Jazz music floated on the night air. They sat in the bandstand. The wind rustled the leaves and the oaks and the sycamores. She rubbed her palms on her skirt to wipe away the sweat. Her stomach fluttered. He studied her face for a long time. Then he pulled on his ear. I want to kiss you now, he said, and he leaned closer. She said, I was hoping you would. At the end of the story, Natalie and April glow. I doubt it's the story as much as the presence of Chris sitting on the floor. When Sheila and Neil kissed, Natalie and April exchanged knowing smiles. Rather than suffer Natalie's attempts at innuendo, I hurry to say goodnight and beat a retreat to the porch. Chris comes out a moment later, and we sit on the sofa like old times. One thing leads to another, and we are soon making out, gravitating awkwardly toward the horizontal. She groans. What is it? I say. My back. The ridge between the cushions keeps poking me. 
What shall we do? I ask. She breathes a sigh, stands, straightens her shirt, and in a convincing Southern Belle accent says, Oh, Mr. Landlord, something has broken in my apartment. Can you look at it? I stand and do my best to play along. Why, Miss Tennant, of course. Whatever is the problem? She lifts her eyebrows and turns to do a slow walk across the porch, her hips swaying. The words fly over her shoulder. Give me five minutes. I'll find something for you to fix. Okay, that's the end of the story, The Bandstand, and we've covered a lot of ground. This story is filled with romance. Five years after divorcing Jesse Flynn, Sheila has finally met a new man to whom she is attracted. At the end of the story, it seems as if their relationship might grow, but we'll have to wait for the next story to find out. And in Thomas's world, he and Chris take their relationship to the next level. We, we, we just have all kinds of romance going on here. Now, the title of the story, The Bandstand, is taken from the final scene. And in reality, there is a bandstand in Rotary Park in downtown Cape May. In fact, during the summer, they have free concerts in Rotary Park for all to enjoy. However, the bandstand there is not the same bandstand where Sheila and Neil had their first kiss. A few years ago, the old bandstand was torn down to make room for a delightful new park and a new bandstand. That's a little sad, I think, but it's often true that progress demands the old make way for the new. In any case, it's good to know that there still is a bandstand in Cape May where romantic couples can steal a kiss. In our next episode, we will hear the story 10%, in which Sheila will return to her old farm in Queensland, Australia, and be reunited with her friends Tom and Hannah and their children. Now I'd like to take a moment to promote my writing, if I may. I've just released a new novel called Carter's Last Race, a time travel novel, which is available on Amazon in ebook and paperback formats. In Carter's Last Race, a likable alien named M is assigned a mission. Grant a selfish human the gift of youth and see if he'll change his ways. Back in 1979, long before Carter Shields married Rich, he was a college student with a beautiful girlfriend named Molly. They spent their weekends together in the little stone house where Carter lived. At night, after making love, they'd listen to the trains pass on the nearby tracks. But then Carter met Linda, the sole heir to a burger chain fortune. Worried about his future, he dumped Molly to marry Linda for her money. Carter went on to live a life of luxury and laziness. His only real accomplishment was to become a distance runner who completed many marathons. Now Carter is 63, and his hips are so arthritic he can barely manage a walk around the neighborhood. So when M offers him the chance to be 19 again for 30 days, he jumps at it. What will happen to Carter on his surreal journey? 
Will he succumb to the frivolous temptations of youth, sex, parties, rock and roll? How will he react when he encounters a young woman who is the niece of his old girlfriend, Molly? Will he repeat his mistakes of the past? And finally, does he have enough time to train for one last race? Read Carter's Last Race and experience the thrill of unencumbered youth. To find the novel, go to Amazon and type Carter's Last Race by Patrick Kelly into the search bar. On today's episode, we had music by Cinemedia and sound effects by Noise Creations and Zapsplat.com. Thank you, friends. I'll be back soon. Bye now.